Uh, if you brought your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open them up to the book of Mark. Probably about three quarters of the way through, you can, uh, you can use your cell phone or your tablets or use whatever you want. My spies are out there, so if you're on Facebook, I'll know. Um, <laughs> if you know me, I, I'm, the, the thing that I'm most passionate about teaching about is God's Word, is straight from the Bible, and I'm so excited to enter this, uh, this Mark series with you. Uh, it's a series that's going to actually take us all the way through Easter, which will be here before you know it, believe it or not. Um, I want to give you a little bit of background on Mark as we begin. Uh, for those of you who are maybe new to this, the Bible is not a book, it's a collection of books. It's a library of books, of 66 different books, of all different genres, all different types of writings, and about three quarters of the way through, there are three books that are positioned together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are three Gospels, but these three are unique because they are called synoptics. That just means seen together, and they tell the same story from a different perspective. In fact, you can hold them up as, as almost parallel. And, and like, it's really interesting. In some ways, these books are almost identical. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they use the same words in the same ways. Um, Mark, the book that we're studying, the gospel that we're studying, has 105 sections in 16 chapters. Matthew uses 93 of those sections. Luke uses 81 of those sections. Uh, another example, Mark has 661 verses, and Matthew reproduces 606 of them. And so what I want you to see is that um, of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one came first and was likely used by the other two writers, like was likely like in front of them as they wrote theirs. And overwhelmingly, the evidence is, it looks like Mark was first, and Matthew and Luke, they used Mark to guide their own writings, to guide their own story. Even, even the order of Mark's events is followed by Matthew and Luke. And so it's important to say this, like I, this series is called The Secret Messiah, The Essential Gospel of Mark. You need to know how essential Mark really is. It is not an exaggeration at all to say that Mark is the most important book in the world. Because it is the very first written account of the life of Jesus. It is the essential gospel. Let me tell you a little bit about the author. His name is Mark. I actually have a picture, uh, a painting. Uh, this actually came from the, they didn't have like cameras back then, so we don't really know what Mark looked like. Um, this was from a, an artist named Franz Hall, 1625. Man, like I feel like our culture has like improved on a bunch of things, but art, like that's pretty, 1625, like that's, I, th I think that's amazing. This, you can go see this painting. It's in Moscow if you want to. It's a painting of uh, John Mark. Uh, Mark, like all good Southerners, has two names. He's also called John Mark, John Mark. Uh, uh, pretty common uh, in the first century church for you to have a Jewish name and to have a Roman name or a Greek name at the same time. Uh, John Mark, Mark was a, a preacher kid, a church kid. 
Um, scripture tells us that uh, his mom owned a house in Jerusalem. She, she had to be, I guess, fairly wealthy. And in Jerusalem, her house was used as a house church. When the early church was forming, they met in houses, and her house was used as a church. It, and it was the staging point for Christianity in Jerusalem. And John Mark was a kid who grew up in that house. He literally grew up in the church. And so when Paul or Peter or these people come through Jerusalem, they all come through the house and there's little John Mark, like annoying people and being loud in worship. And you know what I'm saying? Like he was there, he grew up in the church. And by the time it's ready for the church to send out missionaries into the world, uh, it says that when Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey, they take Mark with them, right? They just pick up the little house church kid and say, we'll take him too, you know, like, and they drag him along. And it's pretty interesting that there's some issues with Paul and Mark actually comes home early. We don't know if his feelings got hurt. We know later that uh, Mark is with Paul. Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, to the, the church in Colossae. He writes from Rome where he's in prison. And in his letter to the church in Colossae, Paul says, oh yeah, and Mark's with me now. So you see Mark following along. Uh, later, we also know from scripture that uh, Mark was a translator for Peter. You guys remember Peter. Peter is, is the denier. He's the 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 the. The, the cock crowing three times, that, that Peter. But he's also the rock on which Jesus said he would build his church. Peter's the first one to give the first big kind of church sermon ever. And Mark, John Mark, was a translator for Peter. He followed Peter. It makes me think, like, how many times had Mark heard Peter's sermons? Right? Like, uh, my poor wife, she's heard my preaching way, you know, like, God bless her. She's heard it more than anybody else. And that was Mark's job, to follow along and to listen and to soak it in. And he heard these words, these, these words of Peter again and again and again and again. In fact, so close is their relationship that Peter calls Mark, my son, Mark. And as a translator for Peter, Mark was immersed in the teachings of an eyewitness, Right? Peter was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He had intimate experience with Jesus Christ himself. And Mark's gospel, we think, his writing, is a record of Peter's experience with Jesus. Does that make sense? Peter, eyewitness, hand in hand with Jesus. Mark follows Peter hand in hand and records Peter's teaching. We think that uh, the original Gospel of Mark was written somewhere around um, 60 or 70 CE, around the time of Peter's death. Um, and it's important to see that like, up until this time, even 30 years after uh, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, the church is expanding, Peter is preaching, but all of those eyewitnesses who were there and saw everything have begun to die off, Right? And everything up to this point had been transmitted orally, right, through preachers. They're just telling the story. They're telling the story. They're, they didn't have an email. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it was oral transmission. And when Peter and others begin to die, it becomes necessary for someone to write it down. Does that make sense? 
I want to show you an example. I have a picture. I think I have a picture. There it is. Uh, this is Papyrus 137. And on this uh, just small papyrus was like this root thing that they pounded into uh, uh, almost a substance they could write on. Uh, this specific um, papyrus with writing on it, it actually has Mark chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 on one side. And then uniquely this, this fragment has on the other side Mark chapter 1 verses 16 and 18. Now, this is dated to the end of the second century. It's written on the, I said it's written on the front and back. Um, this actual fragment, Papyrus 137, wasn't discovered until the early 1900s. And then this is even more interesting to me. It wasn't published or even known that we had this until 2018. Pretty amazing, right? So you, what you need to know is that Recording this stuff, recording the eyewitness account of Peter was a difficult process. They didn't have the printing press. Like that's not invented until more than a thousand years later, right? So someone had to transcribe this stuff down. Now here's what's really fascinating. When you consider the New Testament alone, just the New Testament, we have more than 25 thousand fragments and pieces of the writings of the New Testament. 25,000. We have some that are whole segments that are still together, dating all the way back. The earliest we think we have is, is back to CE 125. Now, I don't know like what you need to know to, to like, maybe you're one of those people like, well, how do you know the Bible's true? And how do you know? 25,000 documents pointing to the life of Jesus Christ. Like no other document, no other historical document even comes close. It is an incredible witness and, and incredible to know like the incredible effort and labor it took to painstakingly transcribe by hand these stories. Do you see the heart and the dedication and the important, the value that it must have had? Now, I want to tell you a little bit about the characteristics of Mark, because each writing of, uh, of the Bible has a, has a different feel, has a different characteristic, has, a, has kind of different nuances to it. And uh, uh, some of the things that I really love about Mark are that, that Mark is, is, is all about realism. Like, this is, this is the real Jesus uh, some have called it a transcript from life. It's written from the viewpoint of a loving, vivid recollection. Um, Mark loves to tell this story. It's gonna, you're going to see that. He delights to tell the facts of Jesus' life in, in simple but also dramatic ways. In, in a lot of ways, like Mark's picture of Jesus is, uh, is the most human picture we have of Jesus. Um, in Mark, Jesus loves. In Mark, Jesus feels compassion. In Mark, Jesus holds kids in his arms. In Mark, Jesus feels hunger and gets tired and needs rest. So Mark is like this incredibly like real picture. But Mark is also the shock and awe gospel. And I know like that may bring up some weird pictures in your head. But, but Mark is all about shock and awe. Like as, as real and as human as Jesus is in Mark, Mark never forgets the divinity of Jesus and constantly just flashes it up there. 
people in Mark again and again and again are in awe or they're amazed or they're astonished or they're terrified, right? It's very emotional. There's never like this mid-range of emotion in Mark. It's always very high. It's always very intense. Some of you will be glad to know too that Mark is the ADHD gospel. Like it really is. Um, Mark is all business. He is very direct and to the point. Uh, Mark's gospel is a story in fast forward. Uh, we're going to get into chapter one today. And like it, at the beginning of chapter one, no one's even ever heard of Jesus. By the end of chapter one, Jesus is a celebrity. By the end of chapter two, everybody's ready to kill him. Right, like this is how fast it happens. Like Mark just moves through this stuff like in an incredible way. Um, in Mark, Jesus is never going to preach long. Jesus is never going to stay in one place for very long. It's, a, it's filled with constant action. Uh, Mark, more than any other gospel, he uses words like straight away and immediately. Mark is, is 16 chapters and he uses the word immediately more than 30 times. Do you see that? Like every section, like he gets six or seven verses in and it's like on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And like, I, I think that tells us something about Mark, frankly. Like he's being intentional about the story he's telling and how he's telling it. But I think that that shows like, like he's got a fire in him to get this story out. I can relate to that. I'm no John Mark. But I know what it's like to have this thing that God's like put inside of you and like you can't wait. It, it feels like being nine months pregnant. You know, like I gotta get this thing out of here. You know, and, and, and you see that in Mark. He's desperate to get it out. He's desperate to share it fully. And, and he's desperate to give it birth and give it life. All right, so that was a long introduction. Maybe some of you can come back, wake up again. How many of you are excited to get into Mark? All right, let's pray before we go there. Father God, here we are standing before this, this sacred text that's been handed down from generation to generation to generation. Maybe the first record we have of the life of your son, Jesus. God, we think it's powerful and good. And I just, uh, frankly, like maybe sometimes we've, we've, we've been too casual with your word. It's sat on our nightstand and gathered dust. It's been something on our to-do list. But God, your word is living and active. It has this power to get into us and to shape us. And so, Father God, I just want to pause before we open this word. Prepare us to receive the message that's within. I thank you so much that we have it. I thank you so much that, that this guy all these years ago took it upon himself to share the story with us. It's a story that needs to be told. So Father God, here we are humbly coming before you. May we receive your word with grace and with truth. We love you. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says. So now I'm going to start my sermon. I've got till what? What time does the game start? I'm good. (laughs) 
I didn't hear what was said, and I don't care. All right, um, <laughs> if you brought your Bibles, I encourage you throughout this series um, uh, to pick up a Bible. We're going to start in Mark chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, and we're just going to do 15 verses, kind of the introduction, kind of the prologue. Go ahead, and it, it will be on the screen for you to follow along, but, but I do encourage you to, to find a book or a, a phone if you can have a relationship with that, like, like there's something important about that. In Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, it says, This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then it says, It began, which we'll get to that in a second. Didn't I tell you that Mark was straight to the point? From the very beginning. What's Mark about? Have any clues? Hey, this is about the good news of Jesus. And Jesus is the good news because he's the Messiah, the Christ. And those are really the same word. They, they just mean anointed one. They mean the son of God or the one chosen by God, the one sent by God to carry about the mission and purpose of God. Let's keep going. Let's do a longer section, verse 2 through verse 8. Here's what it says. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist and he was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they'd repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. And all Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locust and wild honey. And John announced, this is, these are important words, someone is coming. Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So maybe this is a side note, but I wanna, I wanna pause right there. Let's just talk about this section for a second. This is one of the ways that Mark is incredibly different from uh, Matthew and Luke because Mark shares almost no background at all about Jesus. Like, like there's, how much have we read about Jesus so far? Like there's no birth narrative um, he doesn't, like Mark makes a horrible Christmas gospel, frankly. <laughs> like there's no angels, there's no mangers, there's no stars, there's no wise men. Like if, if we use Mark's gospel as our Christmas gospel, Christmas would look like confession and repentance and baptism. In one sense, it begins before the birth of Jesus in the dreams and visions of the prophets. And the very first, he quotes Isaiah. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Like maybe this isn't important for you, but like there's, a, there's some important context here that you need to know about. At one point in time, man and God walk side by side together. Like, and this was God's design to always be with humanity, to be with his creation. There was a fall and there was a distance and a separation that was created. And God, all through the Old Testament, makes attempt after attempt after attempt to draw humanity to himself again, right? 
there are kings and judges and prophets. And again and again, like there's these opportunities. There's, there's even a wilderness time where, where the people of God are so close to God that they follow by a cloud and fire. Like God's presence, his, his presence filled the temple with smoke. God spoke to the people through kings and through prophets, but not anymore. There's a distance between where the Old Testament begins and where the New Testament, or where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. A distance of over 400 years. All of that closeness and all of that unity and all of that God drawing his people to himself, all of that and and all of those opportunities for God to speak through the prophets, all of that has stopped. And for 400 years, God has gone quiet. Not a sound not a peep. And the people of God, by the time of of Jesus coming, are feeling a deep sense of separation. Separation and longing. It made me think like one of the most difficult times of separation I've ever had in my life was, it's a story you guys know, and I won't elaborate on it much, but when we adopted our son from Ethiopia, uh, the way their adoption process works is you have to make two trips to Ethiopia. And so we took our first trip to Ethiopia. We met our son, Cannon. He turned seven this week. Lord, help us. Um, We met our son, Cannon. They handed him to us from the, you know, the childcare place where they were keeping him and Cannon lived with us for a week, right? We kept him and we fed him and we, you know, he slept in the bed next to us and all this kind of stuff for a whole week we had Cannon and then it was time for us to go. And we handed Cannon back. And we knew that we were going to come again but wasn't really certain and it was supposed to just be one month until we came again and it ended up being three And I can just tell you right now, in that time of separation, I wasn't worth very much, right? And God's people, like right here, like in, in this time, they're feeling that, that separation. They wonder if they've been forgotten about. They wonder if they've, they've, they've missed something. And the people of God are so anxious for God to return again, for his voice to return again. And that's when this wild man named John comes on the scene, Uh, He lives in the wilderness. For God's people, that's already a sign. Like their antennas are up in a way that ours aren't. The wilderness is the place where Israel learned to live with God. It's a place to seek him out and find him. It says that he dressed like a wild man, of course, camel hair. But if you look carefully, like all of the, 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 the Jews of that day, they would have known that's not a wild man. That's how the prophet Elijah dressed. And after all of this silence, one has come again with a message from God. And the message is, someone is coming. The Lord's anointed, the one who will bring about the plan and purpose of God is returning. And John becomes, uh, he serves this function as a, uh, I don't know, it's never happened in my day, but apparently there was the day and time where like, if you wanted to make a call to somebody, you like called the operator, right? Some of you may remember this. Don't raise your hands. And, and somewhere, somewhere, an operator would pick up and say, yes, hello. And you would say, I want to be connected to so-and-so. And that operator, like their job was to 
please hold while I connect you, right? And John says, that's my job. That's my job. I'm just preparing the way. I'm, I'm building this connection again. I want to I connect you. Someone's coming. And he's going to baptize in, in ways that I can't even imagine. He's going to bring things that you won't even believe. And so my job is to prepare the way, prepare the road, prepare your hearts. And he preaches a message of confession and repentance and baptism. And I don't want to go into it right now, but honestly, like, like John's mission was to prepare the way, and so is ours. Like that's what awaken is, right? Let's keep going. In chapter nine, uh, uh, sorry, in chapter one, verse nine through eleven. Remember, Mark never sits still very long. We're going along. In verse nine, it says, "One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is he? Where did he come from? He just appears, right? Like." And John baptizes him in the Jordan River. And as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved what? And you bring me great joy. The prophet has come to declare the one, the anointed one is coming, the anointed one is coming, the anointed one is coming, and now the heavens are declaring the exact same thing. The anointed one, Jesus Christ, is here, and the voice is, this is my son. Remember all of that anticipation to be back with God for his presence to return. Now that's happening, right? Do you see that happening in the person of Jesus Christ. And that naming is really important. He says, this is my son. In the next few verses, in verse 12 and 13, it says, then the, the, the spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. Like, this is important. Like, think about, uh, you guys remember Exodus and Moses and Charlton Heston and all that stuff? Like the wilderness was a place of in, like testing for sure, but intense relationship building. The wilderness is where the Israelites learned who God was again and learned how to live with him and how to trust him again, right? They, they depended on him for everything. Literally, they depended on him for food and water and everything. And Jesus, in a, in a weird kind of way, is going into that same space. He, when he is led into the wilderness, it's that same space of, of testing, Matthew elaborates on this big time. When Jesus is in the wilderness, it says that the Satan or the devil tempts him, and the temptation is always the same. It is, if you are the son of God, right? The heavens just declared him. The heavens just named him. And now the temptation is, are you really? And if you look carefully, like in the other gospels, you'll see that Jesus passes the test of sonship not by using his power, not by using his strength, not by using his ability to perform miracles. One test is about bread. Turn these stones into bread. Can Jesus do that? Yes, of course. Does Jesus do that? No. Why not? Because the true test of a son is not the demonstration of our power, but obedience to the power. And Jesus proves that he's the son of God by being obedient to God in everything So we fast forward, verses 14 and 15, our last verses for today. 
Later on, after John was arrested, it says Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. These are the first words of Jesus that, that may have ever been recorded. Are you, you get that? The very first thing he says is the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Jesus announces that after years of isolation and separation, the wait's over. You see that. The kingdom of God, the place where God's divine will and purpose is realized, has come. And his desire, his kingdom, his, his whole everything is to draw near to his people, his beloved, to be with you and I. And Jesus says, hey, I, I was sent to accomplish this purpose. And God isn't just near. In the good news of Jesus Christ, the fullness of God is here. And it's good news because the one with the power and authority to change things has come. Maybe the question for us today as we just, in just a minute, I'll send you to a time of, of communion, sacred space for us. There'll be some instructions on the screen. We do it a little bit different than maybe a, if you grew up in the church or if it's your first time in, we invite you to, to check it out. But I, th I think the question for us already in this beginning is, like, have you experienced separation? How would you define your relationship with God right now in this moment? Do you feel like God is near, like his kingdom is close and his will is being done? Or is there some distance? Because I want to tell you that maybe... Maybe if you were trapped in sin or doubt or fear or guilt, Jesus came to change all that. The one who can alter the course of history and alter the course of your life has come. And what I want you, I think it's so important, Jesus says, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. And what's, what's amazing about this, what's amazing about the good news, and, and like whenever the news of God is preached, it's always decision time. What he says is repent. Repent of your sins. Um. That's, that's more than just saying, I'm sorry. Like if you get into the word repentance, it means to do on a skateboard, repentance is a 180. Like you're going in one direction and now you turn around and you go in a complete opposite direction. It is, it is a full conversion, change of life. But Jesus says, babe, I'm, I'm here. Repent and believe the good news. 
I think at the very essence of repentance, I think at the very essence of that word and the, and the core of what it means is the idea that new life is possible. I have a huge pet peeve when people tell me, that's just the way I am. Has anybody ever said that to you? Repentance says, no, it's not. It says the change is possible. And through Jesus Christ, that change is possible for you. New life in the kingdom of God is open and available to you through Jesus Christ. And that's good news. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Um, I, I thank you for the way it moves us and shakes us. And, and Father God, I pray, that, I pray that we allow it its due in us and in our hearts. I pray that as we dig deep into these words, that, that they would dig deep into us. Father God, maybe there's some sin, there's, there's, there's some willfulness in us that we haven't turned over to you. And Father God, let us hear clearly the words of Jesus from the very beginning, a call of repentance. Let us confess our sins before you. Let us take it incredibly serious because new life, a life filled with your promises awaits each and every one of us. And so Father God, even as we go to these tables of communion, remember, remember your son and his sacrifice and his life. Let us turn again to you and embrace you fully and completely. End the separation. Let us draw near. We love you, Father, and in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says, amen. I invite you to stand and enjoy a time of communion together.